Hebrews chapter 9 expands upon a concept introduced in chapter 8 that talks about how the tabernacle was a example and shadow of heavenly things. That's in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 9 expands upon this. We learn in more detail about this tabernacle. We learn in more detail about the act that took place on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And then we learn in more detail about the Christ. We learn about the need for his death, the necessity of his death, and the need for his blood to be shed, and the meaning of the shedding of his blood. Through this, we are made whole, and as this chapter teaches us, we can then be given the great gift of the testator, the inheritance that comes from the death of the testator, which includes the peace of conscience, as uh, this chapter expresses, and also the great hope of good things to come. Verses 1 through 5 discuss this old tabernacle that is part of the Old Covenant. Verse 1 reads like this, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, in other words, we're talking about a, a second tabernacle. And this second tabernacle was also known as the Holy of Holies. So as we look in verse 3, and it says the holiest of all, that's the holiest of holies. And we, we also come to understand this in verse 7, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, verse 4, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Okay, so this is a description of this edifice, this tabernacle. And we learn in verse 24 that this old tabernacle was what Paul is calling, or whoever the author of Hebrews is, um, figures of the true. See that phrase in verse 24? Figures of the true. So this edifice, described here in verses 1 through 5, is a figure of the true. And again, that's an expansion on the idea that we find in Hebrews 8, verse 5, that calls it a shadow of heavenly things. So a shadow of heavenly things or a figure of the true. Now that's the edifice that is a figure of the true. Now here is the act in the edifice, which is a figure of the true. And we learn about this act in the following verses. Verse 6 says, Now when these things were ordained, 
were thus ordained. The priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So notice the word always. The priests went always into the first tabernacle. So this is the portion of the tabernacle that is outside of the Holy of Holies. However, says verse 7, seven but into the second, as in second tabernacle, went the high priest alone once every year. So there was only one time per year that the second tabernacle was entered, or that the Holy of Holies was entered. There will be more information on why it was once every year as we go farther into this chapter. There's beautiful symbolism for why that would be. Then as we read, not without blood. And this too is a harbinger of some things that we'll discuss as we get farther into the chapter and talk uh, in more detail about the need and necessity of blood as a critical element for life. This concept is introduced in great clarity with great clarity in the book of Leviticus, and we'll read a reference from that as well. Not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So there are some verses that describe the act. Again, the edifice is described in verses 1 through 5, and then the act is described in verses 6 and 7. Here is the Bible dictionary entry on fasts. And it discusses the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, in great detail. So I want to read this. On that day, says the Bible dictionary, the high priest clothed in white linen took a bullock as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering for himself and his house, and two he-goats as a sin offering. He then cast lots upon the two goats. One was to be for the Lord for a sin offering. The other was to be sent away alive into the wilderness as a scapegoat. In parentheses, he then killed the bullock, his own sin offering, taking a censer full of live coals from off the brazen altar with two handfuls of incense into the Holy of Holies, cast the incense on the coals there so that the cloud of smoke might cover the mercy seat, as it were, hide him from God, and as it were, hide him from God. He then took of the blood of the bullock and sprinkled it once on the east part of the mercy seat as an atonement for the priesthood, and seven times before the mercy seat as an atonement for the Holy of Holies itself. Then he killed the goat, the congregation's sin offering, and sprinkled its blood in the same manner with corresponding objects. Over the scapegoat, the high priest confessed all the sins of the people of Israel, after which it was sent by the hand of a man into the wilderness to bear away their iniquities into a solitary land. This ceremony signified the sending away of the sins of the people. Well, here we encounter this imagery that we read throughout the Old Testament, well, especially in uh, Leviticus, where we go into great detail about uh, sacrifices. And they involve blood and they involve death. It can be hard to understand why there is beauty and meaning and holiness 
in blood and in death. This chapter of Hebrews helps us to come to a deeper understanding of that. Now, as we progress into this chapter, we read uh, the following in verses 8 through 10. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. What we're learning here then is that the things that were done were looking forward to a time when, when there could be a work as pertaining to the conscience is done. And that's in verse 9, as pertaining to the conscience. We return to the idea of conscience in verse 14, which we'll come to in a bit. It's, it's the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ that can cleanse our conscience. And so now we're done talking about the edifice that is a figure of the true, to read that, verse, that phrase in verse 24 again, and the act by the priest on the day of atonement, which is a figure of the true or a shadow of heavenly things. Now we're going to talk about the heavenly things themselves and the heavenly being which is Christ. So he enters in verse 11 in this way, this beautiful way. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Okay, so now we've learned that everything we've talked about previously in this chapter is a type. And it is a type, as this verse says, of Christ and of a greater and more perfect tabernacle. We now learn more about the need of a Christ and the need of his blood and the need of his death. So we read in verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice the word once, which helps us to understand why it is that the high priest entered the Holy of Holy only once per year. And uh, we'll return to that in verses 23 through, I think it's 28, or 25 through 28, which will help us to understand this concept of once per year. I know that's the second teaser for that, but we'll come back to it. Then, look at verse 12 and this phrase, but by his own blood. Let's learn more about that. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purif purifying of the flesh, how much more? Okay, so let me just stop there and point out that we're making a likeness or a comparison and saying, if the purifying of the flesh, according to the Old Covenant, can occur through these ordinances that were instituted, 
how much more then in verse 14 it says shall the real blood shall the real cleansing blood accomplish the real act in question which is as verse 14 says the purging of your conscience okay so to read verse 14 again how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God I think in a way I am pulling these two phrases out and slightly out of the, the, the way that they flow from the rest of the verse. But if you simply look at the phrase, the blood of Christ, in verse 14, and purge your conscience, there's a beautiful connection between those two concepts. I think in a way that's an expression of the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the, the uh, and Alma helps us understand that so much when he talks to Helaman in, ver in verse or chapter 36 of Alma, and he tells him how his conscience was racked and how he, he was um, in a state where he was facing uh, the, the effect of his sin and sensing his distance from God and also, in a way, wishing for his distance from God because he dared not to stand before him in his sin. And he was racked with torment, as he says. All of these things are ways of expressing the pain of conscience that comes to all of us as a consequence of the fall of Adam and also as a consequence of our own acts which distance us from God even further. It is, it is these things and it is when we are in this state of mind that we appreciate so much the idea of a clean conscience. Uh, peace of conscience is, I think, the, the great gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's given to us here and now, and as Paul tells us elsewhere, the great gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's given to us here and now is the earnest of his spirit. That too is something that's given to us in the moment, in the here and now. More could be said about that and has been at other times, but there, it, there are here and now blessings that come from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then there are ultimate blessings. And that's, that's uh, the, the, the principle behind the idea of the the earnest of the spirit and of the immediate peace of conscience that can come. It also ties into the statement by Joseph F. Smith, read a, a few chapters ago, uh, that suggests that the rest of the Lord is something that can also be experienced in the here and now as we progress towards the ultimate rest of the Lord. Verse 15 has a, a beautiful statement, uh, a couple of beautiful statements, and, and one that, that, that causes a, a little bit of, of consternation. So let's go into that. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Uh, by the way, the Joseph Smith translation of chapter 9 renders testament as covenant in every instance. Uh, he is the mediator of the New Testament, or the mediator of the New Covenant. So we've been talking about the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant throughout Hebrews. Uh, 
that by means of death, we'll come back to that, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. They which are called. For I am called by thy name. And imagine being called up and receiving the promise of eternal inheritance. Alma talks about looking forward to that time with an eye of faith in Alma chapter 7. It may be Alma chapter 5, actually. I want to come back to by means of death. This is a difficult statement. M must it be so? Well, and, and must it? Why, why was it that animals had to be killed uh, for these mosaic rituals to have effect and to have efficacy? Why did their blood have to be shed? This is this type of, of ritual is a far cry from anything we um, experience today when we go to a, a meeting house or a temple and, and worship. And yet that was part of it in that day, was that there was death and blood. So we go into a discussion now that helps us understand the, the necessity of death and also the meaning and necessity of blood. Uh, and so to answer this question just briefly about why it is that these, uh, these animals were killed during these rituals and that, ex that explanation or that, that uh, description was read earlier from the Bible dictionary. Well, it, it reminds us that death, the shedding of blood, is the price that the mediator must pay. So consider that. that that's the reason these animals were killed, to remind us that the shedding of the blood is the price, that the death is the price. That at, at, at the meridian of time when he came as Jesus of Nazareth, he would have to pay that price in order to, to become the mediator and to become our advocate. And so when in Corinthians, when Paul says, you are bought with a price, uh, that's the price. Now let's go back for a moment, well, forward really, into verses 16 and 17 and see if we can come to a better understanding of what is meant by the death of the testator. So we're going to talk for a moment about the need for death and the price of death and why this was necessary for him to be the mediator. So verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. 17, for a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. It's common to look at this phrase, the death of the testator, and especially as members of the restored church, to think of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, and to think about the way in which he, he sealed his testimony with his blood as a martyr. Uh, what a way to lend, you could say, ultimate uh, veracity to your message, as Joseph did, to die uh, for what it is that you were, what it is that you were preaching, and the cause that you were putting forward. So we we tend to think of this 
as the meaning of the death of the testator. Uh, and, and then apply it to Christ and how he, he made his message ultimately true um, by putting his life on the line. However, this is a secondary meaning. Uh, death of the testator m means something else as well. If you, if you think of it in terms of a will or testament, like the last will and testament of someone who dies, it, it really is this simple. Um, which is that the testator can't bestow his gifts upon his posterity or his, his, his heirs until he's died. He doesn't become the benefactor until he has died. Uh, so that is, that is the primary meaning of death of the testator. Uh, here's here's uh, some commentary by Bruce Sir McConkie that's helpful with this. He says, in legal usage, a testator is one who leaves a valid will or testament at his death. The will or testament is the written document wherein the testator provides for the disposition of his property. As used in the gospel sense, a testament is a covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant or testament, that is, of the gospel which came to replace the law of Moses. Paul mixed these legal and gospel definitions to teach a basic doctrine. Christ had to die to bring salvation. The testament or covenant of salvation came in force because of the atonement worked out in connection with that death. Christ is the testator. His gift, as would be true of any testator, cannot be inherited until his death. Christ died that salvation might come says Elder McConkie. So this lends great insight into why it would be that death was the necessary price for atonement and why it would be that as a foreshadowing for this one-time event, which we'll come to later, there's the third teaser, uh, that for this one-time event, death uh, the animals would, would have to be killed in order to commemorate that, that, that coming event. Now, coming back to the idea of blood for a moment, we, we are introduced to this in verse 12, where it says, not neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And we're going to talk about this in more depth for a moment in verses 18 through 22. So I'm going to read those, then some commentary. And uh, also uh, something that shows up or showed up prior to Hebrews, a long time prior to Hebrews in Leviticus. Okay, verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And now here is the, the point in verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Remission. Remission is contingent upon 
the shedding of blood. That was true in the Old Covenant, and the blood that offered remission was the blood of animals. And that was done to portray or foreshadow or to create a type or to create a figure of the true, as it says in verse 24, of the coming Messiah, the Chosen One, the Lamb of God, who without spot would be shed, and His blood would offer ultimate remission for all. I want to read this commentary. Without shedding of blood is no remission, says Hebrews 9.22. Blood is symbolic of life. Sin offerings under the law of Moses require the shedding of an animal's blood. In setting forth the laws respecting sacrificial ordinances in ancient Israel, the Lord explained, quote, For the life of the flesh is in the... By the way, this is Leviticus. Quote, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Unquote. That's Leviticus 17, verse 11. That's really stunning to members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ who use the word atonement so often with so much fondness and reverence and appreciation to see this old, old statement in Leviticus that says, for it is the blood of that it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. That is packed with meaning. Then we read this in this block of commentary uh, that comes, by the way, from the uh, Institute Manual on the New Testament. The blood of animals ratified the Old Covenant, foreshadowing the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood that ratified the New Covenant and made the remission of sins possible. All of this is summarized so beautiful, or beautifully in uh, the book of Alma. And these are Amulek's words in Alma 34, verses 8 through 14. Uh, I've always been so fond of this passage, uh, but this passage takes on new and uh, expanded meaning when we move through Hebrews and try to come to a better understanding of how it is that uh, these mosaic rituals were a type or were a figure of the true or were a shadow of heavenly things. But we read this uh, passage in Alma and it brings all of this into focus and clarity and, and kind of bundles all of it up so beautifully. So I want to read those. This is verses 8 through 14 of Alma 34. And now behold, I will testify unto you of myself that these things are true. Behold, I say unto you that I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people and that he shall atone for the sins of the world for the Lord God hath spoken it. For it is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Yea, all are hardened, yea, all are fallen and are lost, and must perish except it be through the atonement which it is expedient should be made. For it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, yea, 
not a sacrifice of men, neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl, for it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. Now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood, which will atone for the sins of another. Now if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, Nay. But the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Therefore it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, and then shall there be, or it is expedient there should be a stop to the shedding of blood. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled, yea, it shall be all fulfilled, every jot and tittle, and none shall have passed away. And behold, this is the whole meaning of the law, every wit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. That would be a nice place to stop um, uh, as we cover this chapter, but I do want to go back to this concept of once uh, to make good on the teasers that I offered earlier about why it was that the high priest would enter the temple only once every year. So again, we're introduced to that. Actually, we're introduced to it in an earlier chapter of Hebrews when we learn about this high priest after the order of Melchizedek goes in to the Holy of Holies. Uh, but we're introduced to it in this chapter in verses 12, and then we come back to it um, at the very end of this chapter. But I want to start in verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, so we've read that many times, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. So once per year. This is in similitude then of the once when Christ comes, the once when we appear to him at judgment, and the once when he died. We, we learn this by reading the following verses. This kind of comes out. Verse 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away the sin of the sacrifice, put, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So there, there it is. Uh, why did the priest go in only once per year? And why is it that he really had to shed the blood and, and uh, deliver death to these animals that he sacrificed? Uh, this, this chapter is offered great insights into why that would be. I love this statement at the end of verse 28, or in the middle of it, where it says, Unto them that look for him shall he appear. The, the truth of that statement is, is deep and profound, and it's a theme throughout Scripture.
the theme of seeing him and of recognition. I, I do want to end with a, a kind of a devotional or inspirational element that can be pulled from this beautiful chapter, and that's coming back to this phrase of high priest of good things to come. All of this doctrine and all of this symbolism and this deeper understanding of Jesus Christ as the mediator of the New Testament has a way of bringing us to a place of hope where we can look to a high priest of good things to come and we can look to a great deliverer, someone who can deliver us both in the moment and deliver us ultimately. He most certainly does both just as we draw upon his ultimate grace to enter into the kingdom of God, but we also draw upon his proximate grace moment to moment to sustain us and enable us. So this is a beautiful statement by Elder Holland. Quote, every one of us has times when we need to know things will get better. Moroni spoke of it in the Book of Mormon as hope for a better world. That's in Ether 12.4. For emotional health and spiritual stamina, everyone needs to be able to look forward to some respite, to something pleasant and renewing and hopeful, whether that blessing be near at hand or still some distance ahead. It is enough just to know that we can get there, that however measured or far away, there is the promise of good things to come. My declaration is that this is precisely what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us, especially in times of need. There is help. There is happiness. There really is light at the end of the tunnel. It is the light of the world, the bright and morning star, the light that is endless that can never be darkened. And, and there are several scripture references that Elder Holland provides that refer to the light that can never be darkened. And then he says to any of you who may be struggling to see that light and find that hope, I say, hold on, keep trying. God loves you things will improve. Christ comes to you in his more excellent ministry with a future of better promises. He is your high priest of good things to come. I hope that that statement has deeper uh, and more um, uh, has deeper meaning than ever before uh, because that's a very well-known talk from General Conference I've loved for many years. Uh, and, and you probably know of it too, the called in high priest of good things to come, a, a quote from, from verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But I hope that after this discussion it has even deeper meaning.